today on Misunderstood with Rachel Yucatel, the inspiring and empowering story of Daniel Villegas. If the defendant will please stand. The last 25 years of his life, much of it in prison, has all led up to this moment. In the District Court of El Paso County, Texas, 409th Judicial District, the state of Texas versus Daniel Villegas, number 940D09328. Verdict form B. We, the jury, find the defendant, Daniel Villegas, not guilty of. For the first time since he was 16 years old, 25 years ago, Daniel Villegas is a free man. Mr. Villegas, you have been under many conditions uh, in this court. You are no longer under any conditions in this court. You are free to leave. Good luck to you, sir. Thank you so much for joining me. You are the best. I'm just so in awe of your story, and I wanted to bring you on Misunderstood because I think you are the epitome of someone um, like I have on my show, um, someone who's been misunderstood, a situation that's been misunderstood, someone who has been reduced to a single headline and is on a mission to change their narrative. So thank you so much for joining me, Daniel. Um, it is an honor and a pleasure to have you here. Uh, thank you for having me. Of course. So um, for, I, I want to get our listeners a, a full like narration of your story. Obviously, I want to know how you, you got here to where you are now, but I think your story is so incredible that I want to go through it. Is that okay with you? Oh, yeah, perfect. Okay. So let's start with, um, you know, where we were, who, who you were at 16 years old before that night happened. Just tell me about your childhood really briefly and, and where you were at mentally, physically, with your family, with your friends up until that night. Well, um, at that time, we were living in the northeast of El Paso, which was a pretty uh, pretty bad part of El Paso, pretty bad neighborhood. Um, as far as like uh, my mental state was, you know, I was just a young kid uh, having fun, um, I figured uh, my plan was to always become a Marine. So I figured I'd just kind of straighten out at the end, you know, and, and uh, start working my way up to um, to getting prepared to, to do that. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, as far as growing up, I grew up in a, you know, my family were really close knit. That's one thing that helped me in prison. Mm-hmm. We're very, very, very close family. We're always with there. There was a lot of love there. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, no one's parents are perfect. You know, I'm not a perfect, per, uh, perfect parent. But um, they were, they, I, it was a lot of love there, though. That's good. You know, I can always depend on them. You know, I don't care if I call them at two in the morning, they'll be there for me. You know, that type of love and uh, family bond that we had. Right. 
And as and, you see uh, later in your story, your family is really what stuck by you and helped you get through this and, and essentially got you out of prison. So um, we'll allude to them later, but go ahead. Yeah, so uh, so it was, I grew up, like I said, in a pretty strong, uh, you know, uh, family bond where we depend on each other. Mm-hmm. Um, my growing up was, you know, my dad was a, a mechanic and my mom would clean houses in Fort Bliss. That's a military base here in El Paso. And, um, and that's how we live, you know, a blue collar family. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and what were your friends like? Yeah, all my friends, you know, they were uh, back in them days, the gangs were pretty prevalent. And so all, all my friends were associated with a lot of gangs. Everybody at that time was, I mean, it, it was uh, everybody in their mama was part of something or you had a relative that was part of something, especially in that neighborhood where we lived at. Mm-hmm. And that was my friends, you know, they were, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, wild delinquent kids running the streets right. without any guidance, I guess you can call us, you know, we would do... Uh, you know, our parents, um, not that we came from, uh, a lot of us really didn't come from, I'm not going to say broken home, but we didn't have a split up. We had a mom and dad, or most of my friends did, but, you know, they worked so much, mm. you know, they never kept up with us. So, right. Uh, so you were on your own, kind of. Us. Exactly. Yeah. Um, but so you said that, were you actually part of a gang or you just knew a bunch of gang mem- members? No, I was associated with a gang member. Yes, I was at that time. Okay. And would you say that the what you guys did in the gang was violent? Was it mean? Was it abusive? Like, or were you guys like a gang, like doing coloring books? Like what were you guys doing? <laughs> no, I mean, it, 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 it's, it's like, uh, it depends on what, who you are. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause you know, you're going to have them guys that want to go out there and fight all day long. And you're going to have them guys that want out there and go rob all day long. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And then, you know, everybody starts off, you know, in the gang and, you know, cause it's a neighborhood thing and they're all kids who grew up together basically from elementary. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, so they, uh, so like I said, so when they get older and older, it just progresses worse and worse how their behavior is. Right. You know what I mean? It gets worse. And it depends on who you are. Me, I was more of a, and, uh, I was more of a party guy. I was a guy who liked to do backflips, uh, on, on the back of a pickup truck, you know, I'd jump off a, <laughs> a balcony into swimming pools. You know, I was that, uh, that fun guy that everybody wanted at the party. I was mostly that. And if you look at Dateline, I, was, <clears throat> I mean, it's not that I, I um, you know, say that that's okay, but I laughed when my mom and them, they were like, well, how was he? And they're like, he left the party. Like everyone had the same answer. Because mm-hmm. that was me. You know, I was more of a party guy. You know, I like to go out and just, you know, do crazy stuff, like, you know, just to, like, so had you ever gotten in trouble before? Had you ever been arrested before? Yes, everybody had gotten in trouble in that neighborhood. There's a cop for prevalent, and you had the gang task force uh, uh, division that would always come down on you. And I did, I, you know, I I caused trouble. I, um, I got arrested for some, um, some uh, misdemeanors. I got arrested for, it was a, criminal trespassing charge. I got arrested for, uh, also, uh, I can't remember if they put it as a robbery charge or as a theft charge. I want to say they put it as a theft charge. Mm-hmm. Uh, we had stole this guy's beer coming out of a store. Uh, well, my friend did. And then I just, and he, when he showed up to the apartments, you know, I told him to give me the beer cause then he got it for us anyway. 
-hmm. and I was going to hide it. And I didn't know that the police house right there. So they have got us. But, but at, uh, <laughs> at this point, you, you had never been in trouble by beating up kids or any sort of abuse or physical violent kind of thing. Not, not arrested. I was kicked out of school a lot for, uh, for fights because in them times, like I said, gangs were prevalent in, in the school. So you're, they're always going to get you in the bathroom, uh, kind of prepared you for prison in a way, <laughs> you know, yeah. you gotta, you gotta go in a pack to the bathroom everywhere you go, you go in a group, you know? Mm. So yeah. as far as that goes, yes, I have, but, uh, uh, getting arrested for like assaulting somebody or, um, anything like that. No. Right. This episode is brought to you by Kitsch. I love beauty products. So does my daughter. Sometimes I literally have to hide them so she doesn't sneak in and steal them. We are obsessed with anything that is easy to use, has great results, and saves us money. And that's where Kitsch comes in. Kitsch is a game changer in the world of beauty and hair products. Kitsch is a female-founded company that started in 2010, and now they are carried in over 20,000 retail locations. They believe everyone deserves a little indulgence, no matter your budget, your skin type, or your hair type. I change my hair up consistently and constantly, which makes it hard to keep it healthy. But Kitsch's heatless satin curling rollers help save your hair from heat damage. And their rice water shampoo bars can actually improve your overall hair growth and fullness. Who doesn't need that? Now, I know you've probably seen Kitsch's satin pillowcases, caps, and eye masks, which are great while you sleep, but for a limited time, you can live out your Barbie dream with the Barbie by Kitsch collection, featuring Kitsch's best-selling satin pillowcases in iconic Barbie pink. So this is what the company sent me. I got two gorgeous, hot pink satin pillowcases. We slept on them last night. And let me tell you that I am just obsessed. I slept on one, my daughter slept on the other. Um, she swears by it because she's so into this get ready with me stuff that she actually added it into her story this morning. She said that her skin felt better and her hair looked less messy than it usually does. For me, all I know is it felt great and it looked great on my bed. Well, right now, Kitsch is offering you 30% off your entire order at mykitsch.com slash understood. That's right. You can get 30% off anything and everything at mykitsch, that's K-I-T-S-C-H dot com slash understood. One more time, it's mykitsch.com slash understood for 30% off your order. Um, okay, so let's get to the night that this tragedy occurred. Um, this was in... Um, April, right, of 19, what, ni what year was this? Uh, 1993. 1993. Uh, okay. okay. Um, now, uh, Armando Lazo and Bobby England were two kids that were murdered. They were walking with two of their other friends um, when a car came by and ended up shooting them both, correct? That, am I getting that right? Yes. Right. Um, uh -huh. And um, basically, well, ultimately, you got arrested and charged with capital murder but where were you were you there that evening no i wasn't there that evening i was in fact i was a few miles down the street um away from that area uh helping my friend uh well not helping him i was just keeping him company while he was babysitting mm -hmm. uh so we we're watching some movies at that apartment and uh, eating pizza and then we'll go outside and smoke a, a couple of joints and that's what we're doing you know I stood there. I stood there that night with them, uh, going back and forth until we finished. I can't remember if we finished the second movie or not. But around that time is when we left. Me and uh, my friend went uh, back to my house where we were, you know, where we're going to sleep at because my house had a lot of runaways. <laughs> Got it. Um, so, did you know this group of the four friends um, that 
were, you know, ultimately attacked? Did you know them? No, I didn't know them. I didn't know. Uh, I, I became, uh, I, be, I I got to know Jesse mm-hmm. later on, but um, I didn't know who they were at that time. And uh, I didn't know who the guys were either who did them, uh, who did the crime. Right. Okay. So now talk to me about how you got involved. At what point did they, um, you know, point you out? I know it had to do with your cousin who was picked up. Tell, tell us that story. Yeah, so like I said, I was a very big prankster and mm-hmm. jokester. So, and David Rangel, uh, he was a very gullible guy. He was like my brother, though, you know? Mm-hmm. He was a year older than me. He was my first cousin, and he always stood at our house, like every weekend, on the holidays. I mean, anytime there was no school, he was at the house. Mm-hmm. You know? He was always my older brother. And like that, but he was real, uh, he was a nerd kind of guy. I uh, liked to read a lot, you know? And uh, so he was real gullible, very intelligent book-wise, <laughs> not okay. just street smart, not just intelligent. But uh, so I, I don't know, my my friend, one of my other friends, he had, his sister had a paper route. And so he had seen the murders on the newspaper. So after the paper route, he came to my house and he was like, oh man, look, some kids got killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so... You know, we're looking at the newspaper and stuff. And then, uh, you know, so he grabs the paper, he goes. And then later on that day, David calls, you know, because he's trying to figure out what we're going to do on the weekend. Like I said, he was always there on the weekend. So I decided to immaturely pull a prank on him and told him that we did that. Right. You know, we made it. So this statement you made to your cousin ended up being the thing that snowballed into this whole nightmare um, that lasted for at least 20 years and, and then some. But so just to, you know, put it succinctly, you made a joke and you said, oh, yeah, I killed these guys. He took it as, as a real thing, even though he says later that he thought you were joking, correct? No, he didn't take it as real. He was um, he, he was kind of like not believing and kind of believing. <clears throat> but then, like I said, we were laughing when I was doing it. Mm-hmm. Marcos was with me. That was my best friend that lived with us at the time. He was a homeless kid that stayed with us. That's why I tell you my house was like a runaway shelter. Oh. And um, so, you know, so Marcos, you know, Marcos, you know, he really loved David too, you yeah. know, and, and he's always was like, every time we try to put a prank on David, he'd be the one to try to stop us. So Marcos gets the phone from me. Mm-hmm. And he's telling David, hey, man, this guy's lying. You know, you know, he's just trying to mess with you, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, um, and that was it. We went from there. Right. I don't, David never got in contact with the police. That's where a lot of people get it confused. They thought that he contacted the police, but he didn't. That's where the story is kind of crazy. Because I don't know how they got David. Mm -hmm. Due to the fact that, like, David lives in a whole different side of town. Mm -hmm. Got it. But somehow, yeah. Officer Marquez, Detective Marquez, right, was the man who sort of took charge of this whole thing. He ends up contacting David. He ends up accusing David, right, of being involved in this murder. And, you know, with being so nervous and feeling like he needs to have his one card to get out of here, he says, well, I didn't do it, but I did speak to my my cousin Daniel, who did um, admit to doing this crime, but he was just joking. But, you know, I can give you that information. Is that how that kind of went down the pike? Uh, kind of, yeah. They they, they threatened him and all that, interrogated him and scared the hell out of him. He was going to be raped. Mm-hmm. 
And then, yeah, he broke and told him that he remembered when I joked about that, uh, killing them guys with a, with a shotgun. And that's when he gave the statement. Right. So, um, so he was in this room with Officer Marquez, who we learn later throughout this whole story, has acu- ends up accusing a couple different kids of doing this in a very violent and aggressive way, making awful threats like they'll go to, that he'll fry them, that they will go to prison, that they will get raped. And all these 16-year-old kids um, obviously said they didn't do it. And then um, you come into the picture and... Why don't you tell us what happens during your interrogation? Well, actually, a lot of them kids said they did do it. They did. But for some reason, yeah, they, they, they got some of them made confessions admitting that they did it as well. But for some reason or another, uh, I think one of them was because he was in New Mexico. So when they went and got him, they didn't realize he was because like Texas and New Mexico are so close, you know. Mm-hmm. They didn't realize that he was in uh, New Mexico. So when they brought him to Texas, you know, that was like an illegal transfer of state, you know, a juvenile from one state to the next. Right. Uh, and so they had to throw his statement away, if I remember correctly. Um, so various people also made statements. They just, for some reason or another, they threw those statements away right. and they didn't get charged with the crime. Right, because it, uh, it didn't fit. So I, what I want people to understand, because we're not looking at it from the end here, is that this guy, Detective Marquez, was talking to kids and formulating a statement for them that under these tactics he was using was so aggressive and egregious and violent and threatening and scary for a 16 year old to deal with, um, that you guys just to get out of it finally were like, okay, I did it. I just, you know, cause you had no way out. Explain what that's like, because obviously people will be saying, well, you know, why would kids admit that they did it? if they didn't do it. And then here you are, that's what ended up happening to you. You admitted to something which ended up um, being the one thing that the prosecution held on to keep you in prison, even though a lot of the stuff didn't match up. So talk to me about what an interrogation is like that makes someone, um, you know, flip their answer and say they did something if they didn't do it. Okay. Uh, so like I, I, a lot of people always ask me that question, like, mm-hmm. why, why, you know? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the best thing I can tell them is, and I got to give them one metaphor before I explain it to them, because I tell them it's just like soldiers when they go to war. They train, they train to get, you know, they go through all these stimulus, whatever. But if you look at Black Hawk Down, if you ever read that book, the, them guys say it clearly. They're like, but when the bullets were flying, all our training went out the window. Mm. You know, and that how it is in an interrogation as well. They, like, literally... You know, every interrogation is different. Mine was they literally were like, they were slapping me in the back of the head and stuff and, and threatening me and telling me they're going to put me in the thing. But the worst thing, or I should say the, mo- the, the thing that broke me the most, wasn't so much just a slap in the head. It was the fact that he would get on the table and like kind of lean over to where I'm at. Mm-hmm. And, you know, he has his badge. And it's on that little, like a dog tech thing or whatever. And that badge would be like slapping me in my forehead. And he's telling me he's going to take me out to the desert. He's going to rape me or not rape me, but beat me, get me naked and all that. And no one's going to do shit because I'm just a low life gang member. And he is the police officer. I'm the detective. Who do you think they're going to believe? And while he's telling me that this stupid freaking badge is just steady slapping me in my face, you know, and it's like telling me <laughs> you're going to, you, you're out, you're, you're screwed. Who is going to believe you, right. you know? And then it was, but that badge was the 
probably the worst of it all because like i said it's not so much that it was and it was hurt when it hit me it was just what it was signifying and it was just slapping me in the face and every time he's making a threat it felt like that badge was just hitting me like just here it is here it is you know right and after a while they just wear you down and, and great hey, it's america i didn't do it i'll tell him i did it. i'll get the hell out the freaking moon get away from this person hey, we got the perfect gun, we got the perfect ju justice system and they're going to find who the real guy is and I'll be able to be off the hook. Mm. And that's what you think. Right. And it's not the case. Hair thinning impacts a lot of us, me included. It's not only common, it's normal. That's why I joined the thousands of people who are doing something about it with Nutrafol. Nutrafol is the number one dermatologist recommended hair growth supplement, clinically shown to improve hair growth, visible thickness, and strength. And their physician-formulated supplements use science-backed ingredients. Men and women are different when it comes to thinning hair. It's no one-size-fits-all. And Nutrafol takes that into account. It has unique formulas to provide exactly what the body and hair needs to grow based on biology, age, and other lifestyle factors. You ready to get started on the road to healthier hair? All you have to do is go to Nutrafol.com and take their hair health wellness quiz. Identify causes of your thinning hair and Nutrafol will give you a personalized plan for better hair health. I really love Nutrafol because if you know anything about me, you know I'm kind of known for my hair. And I've been wearing hair extensions for over 15 years. Nutrafol gives me the confidence to know that my hair is getting thicker and growing back and it just feels better. I feel better and I love what it's doing for me. So take the first step to visibly thicker, healthier hair. For a limited time, Nutrafol is offering our listeners $10 off your first month subscription and free shipping when you go to Nutrafol.com and enter the promo code UNDERSTOOD. Find out why 4,000 healthcare professionals recommend Nutrafol for healthier hair. Nutrafol.com spelled N-U-T-R-A-F-O-L.com, promo code UNDERSTOOD. That's Nutrafol.com slash understood. Right. And Texas law actually states that you don't um, have to be interrogated. You don't have to um, have a lawyer or a parent present in the room for a minor, correct? So that's why this happened and you were all by yourself at 16 years old during this interrogation. That and that the system just doesn't work. You know, they're supposed to take you in front of a judge and, uh, and then the judge is supposed to look at you and talk to you ask you how you're doing, ask you, you know, he's supposed to make you feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. And, and the reason is, is because he's trying to find out, you know, if you really want to do this or not. Right. You mean, you know, make so, you mean make the confession. Another, exactly. And then they have another officer that's supposed to interrogate you. And, uh, well, not, I don't, when I mean interrogate, they're not going to ask you, they're just trying to find out if you want to go with the officer or not. Right. And none of that works. Like they go in front of you and they don't even ask you. They just say, okay, you're going to go with the officer? You say yes, they get up and go. They don't ask you how you're doing. They don't ask you, are you comfortable? Were you threatened? All these safeguards is just a formality. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's just like pushing you through the system. Well, it seems that Dr. Uh, excuse me, uh, Officer Marquez seemed to, you know, want to pin this on someone very quickly, tried to do that with a couple kids. It didn't work. But in your situation, it seemed to work. You decided to admit that you did this based on him actually getting out and using the typewriter, writing um, what happened, looking at you and saying, isn't that correct? And you responded with yes, right? And that's how the statement got formed? Yes, that's how it got formed. Yeah. Um, and then later on, after this was done, you finally did see your mom. Right. 
Yes, I saw her later on that day because that was already like four in the morning. So like, let's say around, I can't remember if it was uh, late morning. Mm. It was after I, I seen uh, a, one of my uh, my probation officer. Right. And then I made a statement to her and I told her that I was, uh, you know, that they forced me to confess. So it had to be, yeah, probably around 12 or something I came, my mom comes to me and starts talking to me. So pretty recently, I mean, right after the confession, you saw your probation officer and you told them that you were coerced into signing these papers. Yes, yeah. I did. Well, I didn't use the word coercive. <laughs> I didn't talk like that back then. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> but I told Those are my me. words. Yeah. <laughs> sorry about that. Um, so, all right. And then explain, let's go through how, how it went down. You ended up going to trial, correct? Your family, um, your family, it seems, w- was able to scrounge up $10,000 and hire you an actual attorney who put on, I believe, 18 different witnesses to, the, to, to testify in your behalf, correct? I mean, they didn't have, um, they didn't have a, you know, an eyewitness. You had an alibi. Um, you had a story. You recanted your statement. Um, you had all these things. You, you had friends testifying all sorts of ways um, in your behalf, um, However, they, you know, basically went with the, um, the fact that you had signed a confession. Is that how it went down in your trial? Yes. And we went, uh, like I said, it was, his name was uh, Jaime Olivas. He was a young lawyer just coming up. Um, and he put up 18 witnesses. He did a, you know, um, we thought he had did a good job at that time, uh, you know, but like, I still think he did, you know, he, he tried his best, you know, and he was, like I said, this was his first actual capital murder case too. So, I mean, that's got to be intimidating myself. Now that I get it, um, I work in the, you know, the law system. I know how intimidating that can be. You know, you always second guess yourself and you try to do the best thing. Sometimes it works, sometimes it don't. Well, but, it seems uh, like it worked that time because there was a hung jury. One person mm-hmm. held out and said not guilty. And so you had to be retried a second time, correct? Yes. And he tried to be my lawyer. Oh, right. Okay. The guy who would pay $10,000 to, but you didn't have any mm-hmm. more money to pay him. So you have to go, you had to go with a public defender, correct? Yes. But we asked for him though. Okay. Uh, they, and he asked to be put in the case. He said, I already tried it first time. You know, we did our speech and they denied him. They didn't want him on that case. Oh, wow. So then they're giving me John Gates. Right. With, who well, ended up putting no witnesses on the stand on your behalf. Or maybe it, it was, was one, one witness, one. Uh, marksman. That was it. And just to say that that shot was impossible to make. Right, right. So, I mean, that seems like, you know, something I want to just hit home for a second. I mean, you paid $10,000 to a lawyer who helped you, gave you a hung jury. At least somebody, you know, was holding out for you. Then the public, the public defender comes around, kind of does nothing for you, and says, well, it's on their, it's their burden, it's the prosecution's burden to, to prove this case and he just let let it go, right? I mean, it, it doesn't seem like he did a good job of representing you. And there was so much evidence in the way that this did not happen. You were not the person that killed these two kids, um, but he did not put that evidence up. And you were found guilty, correct, by the, by yes. the jurors? Yes, I was found guilty in less than two hours. <laughs> in less than two hours. Okay, so what was that like? What was that like your first night in prison knowing that you were guilty and going away for, I think you got sentenced to two life terms, one after the other. What, what were you sentenced it to? It was a capital life sentence. Uh, okay. So it means I had uh, 35 to life. 35 to life. 
Wow. So how did that feel? You know what? Once they uh, when they when they convicted me, I was in shock. I couldn't believe it. I was like, "This is." Uh, I didn't think that happened in America. Uh, I have, you know, like I said, I was I I had a lot of faith in America. I wanted to be a marine. You know, mm. my family were always you know strong on the military and everything, and so it really kind of crushed me. But at the same time, I was like, you know, my life is completely over. Like there is no hope. Yeah. There's nothing else we can do. You right. know, and so I said, you know, so what I'm gonna do is I just said, the hell with this. I'm gonna die in prison. So I'm just gonna go in there and be the best convict there is. Um, right. So um and then how how many years were you in prison before you started to uh, have some hope again. I mean, what, tell me about like the, a day in the life of in prison. A day. Yeah. Oh, so like, uh, you know, it all depends on what year we're talking about. You know, my first years in prison, you know, that's, it was, that's when, uh, it was rougher because we were in what they call gladiator prisons. That's where, you know, you're going to fight all day. Yeah. And, um, so like I said, like our first day there, you know, I remember it was like 15 of us and the guard is, has us all in the line and we're all teenagers, you know, mm. all of us on this line, nobody over 19. Right. And, uh, he's telling me, look, I'm going to open up this door. Mm-hmm. And when I do, he said, half y'all going to get raped. Two of y'all might come up dead, but every one of you guys going to get your ass kicked. Welcome to the burning hell. Wow. You shouldn't have done what you did to come here. He said, my only advice is come on with your gloves on, ready to fight. And then they opened up the doors and they let us in. And yeah, they had, they, they ran through every one of us, you know? Wow. I'm sorry. And yeah. some did come out raped and everything. It was just, that's the way it ran back then. Wow. That was how it was in the beginning. And then, uh, and you were there for 20 years. Yes, ma'am. Knowing that you did not commit the crime that you were there for. Yeah, that was the worst part. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's so upsetting to even like be talking to you and know that that is what you went through. Okay, so now I want to get into what is where this takes a turn and how this becomes really interesting. Your brother was married to this woman, um, Lucy, right? No, they weren't married. They just had kids together. Okay. They were, uh, high school couple mm. and they had three kids uh they never were uh a married married as far as the church goes okay well i meant she was part of your family because she was with your brother she had some kids with them they ended up breaking up and um she was very close with your parents obviously knew you knew your story um, was with your brother when you had been accused and when you went to prison and all this stuff um she ends up marrying a man who um, you know, becomes friendly with your parents, right? And takes interest in your case. This is where John Mimbella comes into the story, who becomes um, an angel to you, right? How would you describe who John is to you? Yeah, he is an angel. You know, I mean, even back then and even to this day, you know, he always is there for me, you know? Yeah. No matter what, he's always there. That guy is something else. That was God said for real. 
So John was yeah. a, a businessman. He had no training in legal, anything legal, anything criminal, um, just took interest in your case, obviously, because of his connection um, with this woman who used to be part of your family, sort of because of the kids. Um, and he read all your papers. He read everything he could on the situation and said, this doesn't make sense. Uh, I don't think Daniel did it. And then wanted to get involved. Right. And he came and saw you. And what was that like to meet him for the first time? Yeah, he did. Well, you forgot one part though. It's pretty, it's pretty interesting. So he prays to God after he does this and he's telling God, Hey, I want to help him. Give me a sign. And then, you know, while this is going down and stuff, he gets a call from his real estate agent. To, uh, tell him that this person that in a piece of land that, he, that John had. John didn't even remember he had that piece of land, right? Mm-hmm. So then they're making the deal, and then John finds out that he got this piece of land in 1993, the time that I got arrested. Wow. What had it in all the years, never knew we had it until that moment. Wow. <laughs> and I was the seventh guy, like, hey, you know what? <laughs> this is it. And, and that, him, when that he told me that story, that's what gave me the hope. When he came and see me and told me that, I was like, wow, okay, now I'm starting to see some type of divine intervention. It's, it's, um, it was refreshing. Right, right. So after John gets involved in your case, he starts to bring a lot of awareness to your case. He believes in you so much. He says, I'm going to be with you through this whole thing. He starts to, I mean, next thing you know, people are, not next thing, I'm sure it took a while, but people are walking around with signs trying to get you, you know, attention in El Paso um, for the case. And they want, the, the goal is to get you a new trial. Isn't that correct? Yeah. So uh, that's exactly, he would, he would hear a lot of podcasts and stuff, hear a lot of stories, figure out how people got, like uh, he heard about, um, that's what gave him the idea to put all them signs on one of his, uh, one of his trucks. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, uh, what was that guy's name? He was an exotic, but it was his dad that put his, like, just his story all over his car, mm-hmm. his son's car, and would drive that everywhere while he fought for death. So John would get these ideas from all these podcasts and then just put them to work. Right. Say, okay, if they work for this person, let's try it here. Right. And then he said, and that's what he, he just, he created a, a, well, I mean, you've seen Dateline got into it, and I mean, he just created a, a he, he, he created a, and he was way over his head. He didn't even know it. He even told me, he's like, I did not realize it was going to be this hard to take so much to get so many free that's innocent. Right. Support for today's episode comes from OneSkin, founded by a team of four female longevity scientists with over 15 years of experience studying the biology of aging. I'm always on the hunt for the latest skincare products that keep my skin healthy and looking great. That's what led me to OneSkin. The beauty space is oversaturated with overhyped skincare products, but OneSkin stands out. They target the root cause of skin aging to promote healthier skin from the inside out. Their flagship product, OS1 Face, is clinically validated to improve firmness, fine lines, and overall tone and appearance. OneSkin can be used on its own or combined with your current faves. It's vegan, cruelty-free, fragrance-free, and it's got the skin-safe seal of approval, meaning it's suitable for even the most sensitive of skins. For a limited time, our listeners can get 15% off of OneSkin with our code UNDERSTOOD at oneskin.co. That's oneskin.co. So I basically just started the OS One Face 
And I love the way it makes me feel. I've been using it on my face, my neck, my chest, and the back of my hands. I'm really excited to see how this ends up turning out for me because I keep looking at the reviews and people are saying things like, I will not change and go back to anything else. I love this product. This is my favorite. I noticed visible differences. So for me, I just started it, but I'm so excited to see how my skin changes. Um, I, I love the way it makes me feel. I do, you know, I can't say that I noticed a difference yet, but I will say I love the way that it sits on my skin um, and the way that I look after I apply it. So OneSkin is the world's first longevity company. OneSkin addresses skin health at the molecular level, targeting the root causes of aging so skin behaves, feels, and appears younger. It's time to get started with your new fave face, eye, and body routine at a discounted rate today. Get 15% off with the code UNDERSTOOD at oneskin.co. That's 15% off oneskin.co with code UNDERSTOOD. We only have one body, one skin, and only you can choose to make it better. Age healthy with one skin. So he started making a lot of noise. Dateline got involved. They thought it was an interesting story. Obviously, everyone in town knew who you were because they had followed this murder, right? So you were kind of infamous for a while, but years before um, or decades before. And then now they were bringing it to light and questioning the validity of what happened. Um, so I know that he ends up hiring... Um, an attorney named Joe Spencer for you. And I, and I loved watching, I did watch the Dateline um, episode, long episode on your story. And I love seeing how Joe um, has a meeting with John Mimbella and he tells him the whole story. And he says that he has put together, um, what is it called? Uh, a writ, uh, a writ of habeas corpus. Is that what yes, it is? Yes, a writ of habeas corpus. Yeah. And, and this guy, Joe Spencer says, Okay, this has like a zero to five percent chance of ever working. Like this, this is not going to happen. But after he reads all your documents, um, he says, "Wait a minute, I believe in this guy. I think I want to take this on." And he takes the case on, and he's able to get in front of the judge. Right? How did that feel hearing that news that you were going to at least not get a not get a new trial yet, but at least you were going to be heard out by um, a judge? That was exciting. Uh, I mean, I couldn't believe what was happening. You know, it was it was mind blowing. I was it, it it didn't seem real until they actually came and got me. And I'm walking outside of that prison, and I'm looking back, <laughs> and I'm seeing we're leaving that place. That's when it became like reality. Like I was like, oh my god, like we finally got a chance. You know, right. after all these years, we finally got a chance. Right. Um, it was. And, and was that the first time you had even left the same jail in over 20 years? Uh, no, no. I've been transferred to uh, a lot of different prisons throughout the time. Uh, that was the prison that I was the longest at, though. Okay. So, and while you were in front of the judge, I know that they thought it was going to be a couple days. It ends up taking a couple months, right, um, in front of the judge? Is that what happened, or a couple of weeks? A uh, couple of years. Couple years. Oh God. Okay. Yeah, and yeah, so, it, while it, you were doing that, would you come back and forth from the same jail, or they put you somewhere else to to be part of the trial every day? No, I stood in the Paso County Jail that whole time. Okay, fine. Um, so, what was that like seeing how this was playing out in front of the judge? Because clearly, um, you were able to make your case for the first time, and Joe Spencer put his all into making a new fair. Um, 
you know, well, it, it was like you were on trial, right, to see if you could have a new trial. But he put together an entire trial, put everyone on the stand, including Detector Mar- Detective Marquez, who um, said he didn't remember, um, and all sorts of things. So what was that like to, to watch this go down? <coughs> that was pretty hard. And the reason being is because you're bringing up all these old things, mm. right? And I thought, you know, Sorry, something okay. happened. No, I can still okay, see. So uh, I thought, um, you know, after being so long, the detectives are no longer with the El Paso Police Department no more. They got their pension, you know, yeah. everything's secured. I thought they would go ahead and come out and say, hey, you know, <laughs> we did wrong on this. Mm-hmm. And uh, they did it. They were sticking to it. And it was just, oh man, that was so aggravating for me. Right. You know, to watch people in law enforcement hold their ground. Yet when they went, when Joe Spencer went back and interviewed other random people, he started to see how much evidence he had in your favor. For example, he, um, so when Armando Lazo and Bobby England were out walking that night, they were with two other guys, one of them uh, that both survived. One of them is a guy named Jesse, who you mentioned earlier, right? And he went to Jesse's house. He sat down with him, I think with John Mambella, and they asked him to look at the statement you made and um, asked him to read it. And his response, you know, I'm paraphrasing, was that that's actually not how it happened. This wasn't the color of the car. This wasn't the gun. Um, and so there, in Joe Spencer's mind, this was now going to be great evidence that this was made up because you weren't there. So how could you have done it? And whether or not you were coerced, and that's your statement, you couldn't have been there because that wasn't how it went down, right? Yeah, and not only that, but one of the most important things was when he found out it was Detective Marcus was the one who interrogated me. He got white in the face. And he told John, this guy did the same thing to me. And I almost said I did it. Now, you got to imagine, he almost said he did it. The only reason why he did it was because his mom made a phone call before he could make that statement to stop the interview. You know what I mean? Right. But he almost, he's a victim, and Marcus almost had him confessing. Right. Right. And, and it's important. Was, yeah. And that crazy. is important too, because everything that your cousin went through, everything you went through, um, and maybe some others like you were talking about all went through the same kind of interrogation, um, from, uh, Marquez and, uh, you know, he was just looking for someone to pin this on. So, um, eventually you guys are done, um, with, um, this whole trial thing or in front of the judge uh, in the end of 2011, correct? And you had to wait nine months to get a decision on whether or not you were going to get a new trial. Am I following all this right? Uh, yeah, I just don't remember the year it was. Yeah. Um, so, it might have been a little, no, it wasn't 2000, it had to be a little bit later, uh, probably 12, going into 13. Okay. Um, but you had to wait about nine months to get a decision. What was that like? To, and how did you get the phone call? Did you get a visit saying you have been granted a new trial? Well, you know, that's, that part is, is probably, like I said, those times when you're waiting for the answers and stuff are the most worst moments in your life because mm-hmm. you're second guessing everything. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe we should have done this. Maybe we should have done that. Oh, oh, maybe this. So we did good. It's just, 
you know, you you're just worried about if you did the right thing, and you just and and you're sweating because I'm like, this is my only chance, and I really have faith in the system by this time, you know. I really don't have faith in the system. Right. But I was seeing the way Madrana was during that whole time. And like I said, it was a three-year process. So I was seeing he was totally different from the other judge <clears throat> as far as the way he was making the rulings. Mm-hmm. So I figured I had a, if anything, I had a good chance, you know, because this is totally different from my first judge where if the DA said, hey, the, the sky is purple, Your Honor, she agreed with him, you know? Yeah. <laughs> well, yes, the sky is purple. <laughs> so that was my first judge. So this guy was, you know, he's totally different from that from that first judge I had. So I had faith, but it was still, I mean, it's it, it tears you up because you're like, oh man, it's gonna go my way. They're not gonna go my way. Then you have your days where you're like, yes, I have faith, it's everything's gonna go good. And then you have your days where you're like, I'm screwed, I'm gonna die in prison. You know what I'm saying? And you just wanna fall up and cry. So it, it's a back and forth thing, and it's mine. And it just your your mind is just totally twisted. Yeah. You can't even think about it. And and up until you you knew about John Mimbella and all of a sudden you had a glimmer of hope. I mean, were you pretty hopeless in jail? I mean, at this point, all options had been, um, you know, tried and they, you know, had been declined. You had um, made all of your appeals. You had made every effort to have this not stick or get a second chance, and you were denied on all of them. So at this point, until you met um, John Mimbella, I would think that you believed your life was pretty much going to play out behind bars. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. I, I believed that. Uh, like I said, I totally believed I was going to die in there. Yeah. You know, I didn't think there was another hope in the world. You know, even when John first came and talked to me, I was like, good luck with that. Right. <laughs> I don't know if that's going to happen. So how did you, you know, hear I, How did you hear the news that um, you were going to be granted a new trial? Who told you? Well, it, actually, we went in front of the judge. They had a court date. Mm-hmm. We didn't know until we went to that judge. So then we go on the judge, and then they everybody there, social, uh, the media there and everything, and then the judge makes his ruling on what he's going to do. You know, but he does his big speech before he does that. So the whole time, you're, like, biting your nails. <laughs> you know, and then he makes his ruling. You got to remember, that ruling was just a recommendation. Mm-hmm. So now we got to go to the high court, the court of criminal appeals. Okay. And the court of criminal appeals sits nine judges. And they told me, they were like, three of them judges never go for the inmate. We got to get majority rule. You can count three out of the box. <laughs> and so then it goes to them, and they're like probably one of the most conservative court systems in, in, in Texas, or I mean, in the United States, I should say. And, uh, we had to probably wait a year and a half before they made their ruling. Oh, wow. So, so every Wednesday for a year and a half, they make their rulings on the on the internet, you know, what cases they ruled on. Mm-hmm. And you just got to see if your name's there. So every Wednesday, I'd call my mom and I would ask her, is my name on the list? And she'd be like, no, not you're not on the list this week. And I'd be like, oh, to this day, I hate Wednesdays. Mm. <laughs> I can't stop them. It make my stomach turn. Yeah. Right? I did this for a whole year and a half. Like, it was just... You're just waiting week by week by week. And yeah. every Wednesday, they're telling me for a year and a half, you're not on the list. You're not on the list. So you're kind of happy that you're not out the game yet. But then you're like, oh, my God, how long is it going to take? Yeah. You know, and is it going to work? <laughs> 
Right. And so what day did you call your mom and find out you were on the list? Oh, Wednesdays? Yeah. And, wh and what happened that day? So you finally called her and she said, yeah. <laughs> she screamed on the phone. I, I couldn't understand what she was saying. And I was like, what's going on? What's going on? And she said, you won. You won. They granted it. They granted it. You won. And then I couldn't understand. So she passed the phone. And then that's when they were telling me that I had won. And then I was like, I definitely wanted to pass out there. I was like, I couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my God. So there's no more conviction. And we're starting all over again. And then, uh, you know, and then a, a bit later, my lawyers came to me and then they, they gave me the news as well. And then now we were going to have uh, to get the bond hearing. Mm -hmm. Right. So it was right before Christmas. We're like, okay, you're going to be your first Christmas out because John always said, I'll have you out by Christmas. <laughs> so so this, he, he, he said, I just didn't tell you which one. Oh, that's funny. That's funny. So did you make it out by Christmas? No. The, oh. as the, the DA found out about that, and uh, he made a emergency holiday or something, and they uh, had to postpone it to the following year. So then I got out on uh, January 14th. Uh, January 14, 2014. Okay. So 2014, you have been imprisoned for how many years at that point? Uh, like about 20. 20 years in prison. And mm -hmm. you are released from prison on bond, uh, awaiting a new trial, right? Mm -hmm. What was that like coming out of prison that day? Uh, you went to your parents' house. What happened? Yeah, that was the, that was a crazy day. It was wild. It was so we get the you got to remember. So when we go to the bond hearing, right? Mm -hmm. They're telling me like we're, the DA showing us all these bonds, and they're like million dollar bonds, one point five million dollar bond. And I'm like, there is no freaking way we're gonna get this. <laughs> so, so, so then uh, my uh, my lawyer Joe Spencer's like, hey, I I represent half these clients. That he has on oh, this wow. board. And I'm gonna tell you why this guy's bonded. And we just go down. So finally they give us a bond that we can get. So that's a miracle. And then the judge says, Okay, boom, I'm giving them this bond and I want them out within 30 minutes when he pays it. Wow. So they got me out of there within 30 minutes. So they kind of rushed me out of there. And then once I hit the like the once I got out of the building. I was just, it, it was crazy. I was, I was just assaulted by all these different smells. Like I could smell the street pavement. I could smell all this different stuff. You never, you know, all I smell in jail and in prison is just, you know, it smells like a, you know, kind of like an infirmary. You know, it's, it's stale. The wow. air stale. You know, it's all stale. Now we're getting. I'm smelling the streets. I'm, you know, I'm hearing. I heard the train. I have no hollow. I mean, years I heard the train. You know, so it's just, it was crazy just seeing how everything was wow and um so it was just in the process it was i still didn't come to me yet i was still doing a like we went to uh the steakhouse to go and eat right when i'm walking in there i stop when we get to the doors and then <laughs> like they're walking and they turn around and look at me like what are you doing i'm like i'm waiting for the buzzer and they're like what buzzer you just uh -huh. walk in and then i realized and then i feel embarrassed because we got dateline and everybody there you know oh, <laughs> I'm recording God. this <laughs> Oh, how funny. But well, you were so like, used to this, yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, even when it came to the silverware, like, I seen they had knives, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe it. 
trust us with knives. And unconsciously, I'm putting it in the sleeve of my coat jacket. And Amanda grabs my hand and she's like, you don't got to do that no more. And then like, I realized what I was doing, but I just did it without thinking, you know? And I was like, oh man. And then like I said, I mean, there was just so many moments like that. that it's just kind of hard to you know, realize, hey, you're not in that environment no more. Right, right. I, I, out of curiosity, how many hours were you confined to a cell on a daily basis? It, it all depend on uh, what time of year it was, you know. Um, but for the most part, I mean, we get out in prison, you have, uh, depending where you're at, I was always on a, like close custody side and stuff. So uh, we didn't have much movement there. You're pretty much in a cell. We probably get about two hours of rec time. And then it's 12 hours to eight hours of work. Oh, so you depending did you, what year it was. What what were you working as when you were there? Uh, we were in the in the what the what they call the whole squad, which is we were the ones with or the they call it the chain gang. We're out there doing all the the farming and stuff. Oh wow. <laughs> Picking cotton. Wow. So you were outside though. Yeah. And we're out there picking cotton. And I remember they used to tell, that's why I laugh a lot when people, you know, they're talking about, you know, slavery and stuff. And I'm like, I laugh. I'm like, have you guys ever been picking cotton for free? Cause I know I have, mm. oh, wow. <laughs> you know, I know how that feels like. Yeah. <laughs> you um, got a guy with a gun there telling you he better not see no green on there. You're going to get shot. Wow. Wow. Oh, Daniel. Okay. So let's go back to a nicer story. So you're out of prison. You now are free on, on bond and you're awaiting your next trial, which it seems like takes quite a while. Like you guys don't really know when charges are going to be filed, if maybe they won't be filed or what will happen. And in the meantime, tell me a story really quickly about how you met Amanda, because a woman starts to write you in prison, right? And you develop a relationship with her and this becomes your love, right? And you have some children with her when you get out. Tell me about that relationship really quick. Okay. Um, so when I first got, uh, when Amanda first wrote, I had, was going to go to a court that morning. Mm-hmm. And so I was praying to God and I told God, you know, just give me some type of, um, just uh, help me with faith. You know, I, I'm not going to ask you for a sign. Just give me faith. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to need faith to go through what we're feeling to go through right now. And then the officer comes and he's like, here, he's at the, about 15 minutes after I pray, give me a letter. And it just says faith on it. Wow. Because Amanda's name was Amanda Faith. <laughs> you know? Oh, my God. <laughs> <But> it, <laughs> so I was like, oh, wow, that's crazy. <laughs> so I read it. And then, you know, she sounds, and I like it. So then, you know, so I write back and I told her about that. I was like, I'm praying for faith. And then I get a letter and you don't put nothing but faith on it. <laughs> oh my god I love that <laughs> and then so we just started writing back and forth and stuff and then um there was a time that uh my parents and everybody were, were leaving out of town to go uh watch a football game so I needed somebody to visit me that weekend and I asked her if she'd come and she said yeah and then that's the first time we've seen each other you know we're <laughs> and then from there it just kind of built up Right. And then when I got out, we got together and then we ended up uh, having, uh, I helped her raise her stepdaughter, Kayla, and then we had two kids together. Wow. Ever since my daughter started back at school, our schedules have been crazy. I try to make it a priority to cook us a great dinner, but sometimes I fall short. 
That's where HelloFresh comes to the rescue. It's farm fresh, pre-proportioned ingredients and seasonal recipes delivered right to my doorstep. Saves me trips to the grocery store and saves me money because I always end up buying things we don't even need. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit for a reason. Their menu includes 40 recipes and over 100 add-on items to choose from every week. And it's not just dinners. You can, stock up, you can stock up on easy breakfast, lunches, and fresh snacks. All you have to do is shop the HelloFresh market and add it to your weekly box. It's that easy. I've also used Green Chef in the past, which now is owned by HelloFresh. And with a wider array of meal plans to choose from, there's something for everyone. I love switching between the brands, and now my listeners can enjoy both brands at a discount with me. So go to HelloFresh.com slash 50 understood and we use the code 50 understood for 50% off plus 15% off for the next two months. That's 50 understood is the promo code, the number five zero not spelled out. So go to hellofresh.com slash 50 understood and use code 50 understood for 50% off plus 15% off for the next two months. HelloFresh. It's America's number one meal kit. Amazing. So that must have been really nice to know she was waiting for you when you came out and you had someone to, to be with. I mean, that's probably half the battle, knowing, you know, if you'll find someone who can understand your past, understand that you you might have to go back if you have another trial and you're found um, guilty. So uh, I think she w was a very, you know, that was commendable, brave of her, and amazing that she loved you the way she did when you needed her to, right? Oh, yeah, man. I mean, Amanda, I mean, she was got sent to, like I said, I mean, when we went through that um, that trial, I mean, it that, that took a lot of us. Mm -hmm. It took it took it took a lot out of us, I should say. And, um, you know, she held it down, mm -hmm. you know, when I was weak at that time, you know? Yeah. So now she, you're, t you're talking about your third trial, right? Yeah, on my third try, you know, so she was God sent and she was a blessing. Like I said, she was, unfortunately, we just, you know, we just, trial just tore us apart too. Right. So you're no longer together, right? Yeah, we're not together for that, literally going through that trial. I mean, it was just, oh my God. And I was like at my weakest yeah. at that point, man. I was just like burnt out. I was just right. out of there. And she, she held it up, man. I mean, Amanda did, and she, she held it up for us. And I'll never forget that. You know, and I always told her, I said, don't ever forget, you know, you held it up when I was weak, you know, when I couldn't walk, you held the cross for, for a moment. That's right. That's right. And you guys still co-parent these two kids. So I'm hoping you have a good relationship with her still. Yeah. yeah. She drops off the kids in the morning and then she'll pick them up uh, and then I'll, I'll take them to school. I'll pick them up from school and then they'll stay here. And then when she comes out of work, she'll come pick them up from my house too. Or take them to her house, depending if I'm at my house. Okay, good. So just briefly talk about how many years was it before you got out of prison and then you went back to trial? What, how many years were you out um, free? Oh, about, it was four years. Four years, okay. I got out in 2014 and I went to trial 2018. So about four and a half because it was at the end. Okay. And, and also somewhere in there, I mean, it, it must have been really hard to get through the day not knowing if you were going to find out if they were pressing charges again or what was going to happen. I mean, your life must have been in limbo during those four years, right? 
Oh, no, no, no. The, they, we knew right away they were going to press the charges. They did. They already had press the charges. It just took four years to take a trial. Got it. Okay. Uh, so, so during that whole time, I knew, well, I knew we were going to trial. Okay. Uh, I was hoping we weren't going to go to trial, but uh, I was already anticipating that reward. You know what I mean? You hope for the best and prepare for the worst. Right. So now talk. Talk about the Alfred plea. Um, the the prosecutors did come to you. I don't want to get this wrong, but I just want to sort of give the overview. They came to you with a plea deal, which you ended up uh, deciding to decline. And that is called an Alfred deal, right? An Alfred plea? An Alfred plea. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Am I getting that right? Yeah. So an Alfred plea is a crazy plea bargain. It's uh, maintaining your innocence, but still pleading guilty to the charge. You maintain that you're innocent, but you say, but I feel like the state has enough evidence, you know, to win a trial. So I'll plead guilty, right. but I'm innocent. That's an offer plea. And that's what they, uh, and uh, that's what they came to me with. So that, and usually they come with uh, like stipulations and stuff. Right. You know? So the upside of that is that you would have been able to maintain your freedom but the downside is that you would have been a convicted felon, correct? Mm-hmm. And for you, um, I know you have said in the past, like, you know, give me freedom or give me death, right? Like this was too much. You really wanted your freedom. You wanted to say you were not a convicted felon. You decided to roll the, do- the dice and you declined that um, plea deal and you decided to go to trial, right? Yeah. Oh, actually... I wanted, I was going to sign that plea deal, but Amanda stopped me. Wow. <laughs> the lawyer told me about it. And then I was like, what's the stipulation? And he's like, well, we don't got no stipulations. It's basically time served, you're gone. And I'm like, really? So it's over with. And he's like, yeah. So I'm like, okay, yeah, let's do this thing. Because you got to remember, it's just not, it's, it's I know, like when if how can I put it? I'm not the same person no more mm-hmm. that I was in prison. I know if I go back, they're gonna see that. I can't be that person no more. What do you mean by that? You know, in prison I was a cold-blooded, you know, really I was a piece of shit in there basically. You know, I was I didn't think I was gonna go home. I didn't have no faith in nothing. You know, I, I really did not have, you know, I was in a black spot and a real dark, dark spot, you know. And maybe lost company. So people see me a different way in there. You know, they see me as very, uh, you know, cold and stuff. And uh, I know I can't be that person going back. I had kids. I had, I like, I never experienced life as an adult. And now I'm experiencing life as an adult. I'm paying bills. I'm doing all this. And, and I'm having, and once Chanito was born, like, my whole life just flipped upside down. And I don't mean that in a bad way. I mean in a good way. Like, I knew I couldn't teach him how to grow up thinking the way I think. So I had to like empty out the cup. And now you have a reason, right. And now you have a reason to stay out of jail and to to do well (laughs) and to not go back. Right. Because you've found love. You found unconditional love with your children. Um, Your parents have stood by you. You have someone like John Mimbella who you don't want to let down. I mean, you have all these people that are rooting for you. Whereas as a 16 year old kid, you know, you didn't know what, what your life could hold. You know, so I think it's a much different mindset now as well. Oh, yeah, it was totally different. And that's why I didn't want to lose it. Yeah. But (laughs) 
she uh, she told us to give us uh, to two days. So I told her, I was like, you are crazy. I'm like, didn't do 20 years in prison. I did. <laughs> I don't want to do another day in there. No, hell no. Um, but I said, okay, let's do it. And then we called Jason Baldwin from uh, West Memphis 3. And he came down and, like I said, it was, it was days of, of hell and going bickering, going back and forth and do it, don't do it, you know. And finally, I, I, we decided not to do it. And, uh, Jason and Jason Baldwin, uh, just to clarify, from the Mem uh, West Memphis Three, took the Alfred plea, right? And he, yeah. Uh, and and so that was a good comparison to know what it's like to live life, um, taking it as opposed to not taking it. So he helped you make that decision to decline it. Yeah, because he was like, at first he'd be like, "Take it, because you got kids, bro." 